Today we're going to talk about fishing and why sustainable fishing matters. But first, we have to brush up on our fishing facts. Peak fish supply occurred in the 1990s. Since then, we've seen a decline in supply. But what's causing this decline? Overfishing, and the fact that our demand for fish continues to increase despite a shrinking supply. We're essentially taking more fish than can be naturally replaced. How did this happen? With the rise of industrial ships, destructive habits, and weak government regulations, overfishing flourished in the past 10 years, leading to a depletion of the global population of fish. So the idea that there are plenty of fish in the sea, well, that's really not true. And it brings us to our data point today. One billion people rely on fish as their primary source of protein. And thousands of people rely on it as a source of income as well. As the world's population continues to grow, so will the demand for fish, which is projected to rise by over 20% by the year 2030. The good news is that many experts think restoring abundance to the ocean is very much within reach, but it's going to take time and a unique approach. Almost three years ago, Bloomberg Philanthropies, in partnership with Oceana, Rare, and Encourage Capital, launched the Vibrant Oceans Initiative, a $53 million five-year effort to boost fish populations in Brazil, the Philippines, and Chile. The goal was clear. If we can reform fishing practices in these three vital countries, we will revitalize 7% of the world's fisheries. One of the largest single contributions ever made for such work, the Vibrant Oceans Initiative, focuses on revitalizing the fish population by simultaneously tackling both industrial and local fishing practices. To tell us more, we welcome Melissa Wright, a member of the Bloomberg Philanthropies Environment Team, and Andrew Sharpless, the Chief Executive Officer of Oceana, as they discuss the ways the Vibrant Oceans Initiative is working to encourage responsible fishing globally to protect this vital source of food and income for generations to come. Welcome, Andy. It's great to have you here at Bloomberg Philanthropies today. Really thrilled that you're able to join us for the Follow the Data podcast and looking forward to the conversation today. Me too. To kick us off, I just wanted to hear what you think is the biggest misconception about the oceans today. I guess some people think it's impossible to hurt the ocean. It's so big. They're famous like scientific forecasts from the 1850s, 1860s by very distinguished scientists of the period of saying that the ocean was so abundant, so big that it was, it was impossible for humankind to ever have an impact on it. Second big misconception is, well, then it's so big, there's nothing we can do about it. But Oceana is doing something. Can you tell us more about your leadership at Oceana and what you all are doing? What Oceana's job is, is to put more fish in the sea, to make the oceans more abundant so that we can feed lots of people from a rebuilt ocean. Our method for doing that is winning national policy changes that produce that outcome. Chiefly, that focuses on two things, stopping overfishing and uh, fighting pollution. You've been doing this since 2003 when you you took the helm at Oceana, and uh, you have a pretty diverse background that brought you to the place where you are uh, today. Can you tell me more about what attracted you to Oceana and the work that they do? Yeah, I did not take a straight line to this uh, position. (laughs) I uh, 
In fact, a lot of people who work at Oceana know, knew since they were very young that they loved the oceans. I'm not that guy. I was, you know, if you talked to me when I was 20 years old and asked me what I, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said, oh, I want to run a public interest group. And I would have had a long list of the public interest mm -hmm. could involve lots of good things. But I wasn't narrowly focused on the oceans. So I was a public interest guy as a young man. I thought a lot of public interest advocacy was full of good intentions. And I went to so many meetings where people were talking very eloquently about something mm -hmm. and then nothing would happen. And I got pretty disillusioned and I went into business. And one of the things I loved about business, which is unexpected because I was like this really progressive young man, was business. It really matters whether you do what you said you were going to do. And, you know, pretty much every quarter people notice right. whether you're getting Held you accountable. Yeah. And I loved that about it. It was so real and so satisfying. And then to make a very long story somewhat short, the founders of Oceana, and it was founded by five big foundations, and they contacted me and wanted me to help to run it. And I said, I don't want to work that hard because I, I knew about <laughs> startups and I had been in some business startups and I know what that takes. And so I said, well, I'll help you find your CEO and I'll help get people organized and and I got there and I learned, frankly, I learned about what was happening to the oceans. I learned about the blueprint that the founders had for a very practical group that would deliver measurable outcomes quickly. So, lo and behold, here I am. An ocean 14 convert. 14 years later, yes. We ought to dive into some of the data and information that Oceana is so well known for. Um, wanted to point out a, a data point that we used as we were formulating the Vibrant Oceans Initiative, basically that more than 80% of the world's fisheries are either overexploited, at risk of becoming overexploited, or recovering from overexploitation. But it also is clear that proper management of fisheries can increase the number of fish, and it's projected that could be up to even 50%. So can you say a little bit about the Vibrant Oceans Initiative and how this work is aiming to address that problem? So Vibrant Ocean Initiative brought Oceana together with two other NGOs, one called RARE and one called Encourage Capital. That was Bloomberg's idea. The essence of that idea was that the problem of ocean conservation can be broken down into overfishing and pollution. The solution to that can be broken down into controlling the big industrial fleets that have the capacity to overfish really aggressively with these colossal big vessels. And then also helping the smaller artisanal fishers that work closer to the shore self-manage better. And that the fixes for each of those are different. You need to have laws and the regulations force the big boats to do the right thing, fish sensibly, scientifically. Mm -hmm. So Oceana specializes on getting mm -hmm. the laws and the policies and the regulations in place so that the big boats don't overfish. Rare focuses on capacity building, kind of community organizing amongst the smaller fishermen so that they know how to do a better job of managing the coastal inshore fishery, and so they can see the benefits of that themselves. Courage Capital is a uh, social impact capital firm whose job it is to, to raise social capital to help the fishery transition. There's an opportunity to rebuild ocean abundance so that there are not only more fish in the sea, but there's more fish to be caught from an abundant sea. There's more jobs from an abundant sea. There's mm -hmm. more fishing jobs. There's more food to feed people from an abundant rebuilt ocean. So everybody would think, well, if there's all this upside, why doesn't this just happen? The reason it doesn't just happen is that it's like rebuilding your bank account. After you've spent your bank account down, 
you don't get a very big interest payment off of it. You have to rebuild the bank account. The oceans rebuild really quickly. Many fisheries come back very quickly. And so Encourage's capital's fundamental mission is to finance, if you will, that transition. In some cases, it's five years. You'll reduce fishing pressure. Fisheries rebuild. Everybody can be making more money, having more jobs, catching more fish. But in the short run, you have to reduce fishing pressure and therefore income. So it's good to be able to help people through that transition. So how do we know all of this is working? It's a great question. Bloomberg came to see us a few years ago and challenged us in a way that was really profound and the way that Bloomberg likes to, to do that, Bloomberg Philanthropies. And I said, well, I don't know. How does Bloomberg Philanthropies like to do that? And you told me the story about your tobacco work. Right. And the tobacco work at Bloomberg was similar to what we do in that the objectives in many cases were policy objectives. Mm-hmm. Pass a law, pass a regulation, controlling the access that the tobacco companies have to you know, get people addicted to smoking. Right. But what you did that was different then, and I didn't know about, was you measured outcomes in terms of lives saved. Mm -hmm. People who were still living, who would have died otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, well, no, I can't do that. That's impossible. Because here's how ocean conservation conversations work. If you sat down at an ocean conservation meeting of many organizations, first group might say, you know, the most important thing we can do is to save the big predator fish, the sharks, the uh, tuna, mm-hmm. the other ones that are like the lions and tigers of the ocean. Because if you save the ones at the top of the food chain, then everything else yeah. is, has to be abundant underneath The it. charismatic megafauna. Correct. And the second group would say, no, 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 that's completely wrong. The most important thing is to save all the little creatures at the bottom of the food web, like the sardines and the anchovies. Because if there's lots of abundance at the bottom of the food web, then, you know, things can build on that. Third person would say, no, no, that you guys are both wrong. The most important thing to save is the uh, the reefs, because if you have the reefs abundant and healthy, that's where most of the biodiversity is. Mm-hmm. And if you were a funder like Bloomberg Philanthropy is listening to that conversation and trying to decide how you were going to measure your outcomes, you would be buffaloed because how do you, you don't have a single metric. Mm-hmm. First guy's measuring by the number of sharks he's saving. Second guy's measuring, she's measuring by how many anchovies she's saving. And the third one's measuring by how the reefs are doing. And you can't convert one reef into six anchovies sure. into ten sharks. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, it's just you don't have a common metric. So I, I I said no, we can't do this. Sorry. And I was pretty discouraged because I was looking forward to like working with Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I went away and I thought about a conversation I had had in in Geneva with the ambassador to the World Trade Organization, Mr. Wu. He listened to me very respectfully talk about how there were all kinds of measures of serious problems in the ocean. And I said to him, you know, I hope you won't contribute to that problem. And he basically said, we have a billion people in China to feed. The West has been overfishing the oceans for a long time. We're going to get our turn. And uh, I left feeling that I had really mishandled the meeting. Here I had a message, which was that we could have more food from an abundant ocean. I completely failed to make him understand that. Because he heard me giving the kind of conventional conservation message, which is an important one, but it's just only about biodiversity protection. And that made me realize, well, wait a minute, we can measure what we are doing in a systematic metric, which is the food value of a rebuilt ocean, the food resource of a rebuilt ocean. How many meals could we feed from a rebuilt ocean? I called Bloomberg back up and said, wait a minute, we have a new idea. And let's talk about this food 
a food metric. You were able to bring back that epiphany and help develop what's now three-country effort around overfishing. And I saw this work in action and in a recent trip to Brazil and was so impressed and inspired. And it became very clear to me how the different components of this effort really work in tandem for a broader effect. And one of the side trips that we went on when I was in Brazil was to Itajaí, and which I understand is one of the largest commercial fishing ports in Brazil. I think it's the largest. The largest. And we went on a a boat down the river and saw various vessels hauling, yeah, hauling in huge, huge loads of fish. And um, I mean, the audience should understand we're not talking about like two guys in a little, you know, fifteen foot skiff. These are like they look like. Yeah, their ocean. loads. Their yeah. loads were being off, yeah. off hundreds with of conveyor belts. feet long. Basically. Yeah, two hundred feet mm-hmm. long boats, really big vessels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Monica, the Brazilian rep from Oceana, mm-hmm. was telling me about how there was a lack of information now about what those boats are bringing in, which species, how much, when, and where they've been fishing, because the country stopped monitoring their landings or their catch a few years ago. Can you speak to what impact that has had on the fisheries in Brazil and the work of Oceana? So I've taken that same trip with you, and it's very impressive. Mm -hmm. um, The scale of our ability to catch ocean fish is enormous. And you see it as you go down that river, and you see these vessels that are stories and stories high, Mm -hmm. four, five, six stories high. So amazingly, Brazil has collected no data on its own fisheries since 2008. Brazil's had a kind of a budget crisis in that year. One of the ways they saved money was by canceling all data collection efforts on fishery catches. So fishery catches are called landings. And so working together with you know our partners there, we are now gathering landings data and in an official and credible way and reporting that up. And they're now gathering data for on about 40% of the total fishery catch. Congratulations. Yeah, which is a it's a pretty basic step, but you can, mm-hmm. we can all see how it, that starts to set the conditions for you know, scientific and sensible management. We've just launched together with this little enterprise called Google, G-O-O-G-L-E, <laughs> and uh, SkyTruth, an NGO, and it's our other partner. It's called Global Fishing Watch, and you can go to or your listeners can go to globalfishingwatch.org. This this gives everybody in the world who has a regular internet connection something that nobody's ever seen in, in the history of the planet, which is a global view of 35,000 of the world's biggest fishing vessels in action all over the world. The capacity to drill to see the world in a macro sense and see like where the Spanish fleet is all at once on a global map or to zoom in on a place that you're particularly interested in. And then even if you see a vessel, a particular vessel fishing in a place that it shouldn't be, you can actually click on it and get its name, its flag, its identifier. And you can even follow where it's been and see its history back all the way to 2012. What kinds of things would we see if we did that? So this is really a moment where I think we're going to discover over the coming years that this tool reveals all kinds of things that we don't know. And so I anticipate that it'll be used 
in all kinds of different ways. Companies that buy seafood, that want to make sure they're sourcing it sustainably from honestly fished fisheries, will say to their fleets that supply them, I want to see your boats on the global fishing. I want to make sure that you're fishing in places where you have license to fish. I want to make sure you're not fishing in forbidden zones. So President Obama created an enormous closed fishing zone, fully protected fishing zone around the northwest Hawaiian Islands. It has a long Hawaiian name. Don't ask me to pronounce it. Papahanaumokuakea. Oh, way to go, Melissa. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's impressive. People could wonder, well, okay, so we created this, but how do we know whether it's real? You can go to Global Fishing Watch and you can see now. And in this case, the American government gets a lot of credit because if you go, you'll see that it's being enforced. And then you can go to places and sometimes discover problems. And then you can alert your local newspaper or you can generate some pressure. Basic principle of governance is governments do a good job when their citizens can tell whether they're doing a good job. In fact, there's a famous case in Kiribati where the Kiribati government created a big Phoenix Island protected area. It's a very big protected area. It's a good thing they did. And then uh, with the help of Global Fishing Watch, they identified a particular vessel that had cheated and fished in there. A big fine was paid, multi-million dollar fine. So real real consequences. How is Oceana using the Global Fishing Watch platform? I'll give you a nice example. So the world's most important fishery, believe it or not, is Peru. Up to 10 or 12 percent of the world's wild fish catch can be caught each year from Peruvian waters. It's huge. Amazing thing. They're like the Saudi Arabia of fish. <laughs> So it would be good from the point of view of the future if the Peruvians did a good job. So we have a team in Peru, and Bloomberg is helping us with that project as well. The last place on the west coast of South America where shark parts can be landed and exported is Lima, Peru. We use Global Fishing Watch to track particular Spanish sharkers that we suspected were sharking in the southwest, southeast Pacific and guess what? We discovered that they fish, and then you can see them running into Lima and then running back out of Lima. And we found 12 different vessels doing this. We presented that information where you can show the history on a map to the Peruvian government and said, look at how Lima is being used by a really disreputable part of the Spanish fishing fleet. You can really help protect, create an almost like a safety zone for these sharks in this part of the ocean by closing the last port on the west coast of South America. And so they've done that. Excellent. Yeah. Data makes it concrete and believable. So it sounds like countries around the world have an opportunity to take an active role in managing their fisheries. Oceana, Rare, and Bloomberg Philanthropies brought on the University of California, Santa Barbara, to do a modeling study about the impacts of the initiative. And I think that those findings were really interesting and relevant, potentially for other places that may want to enact similar policies and programs. Can you say a little bit about what you learned from the study, Andy? The countries that Bloomberg has put into the Vibrant Ocean Initiative, Philippines, Brazil, Chile, and maybe now adding in Peru, were chosen not because they were easy, but chosen because they represented those 30 countries. They were like a portfolio that represented the whole challenge of making a global difference in ocean Mm -hmm. management. The theory was that if we could make a measurable difference in these places, then it would be possible to go ahead and make a global impact. So this is a dramatic moment for us when we uh, met to see the results of this study. And here's what they found. Over a 50-year view, after you win the policy implementations and the work that RARE does, 
across these three countries, the Philippines, Chile, and Brazil, you're going to see big increases in three measures. 53% up in biomass, 55% up in catch, meaning every year you can catch 55% more than you can catch in the business as usual case, and then a 31% increase in, in revenue. The biggest benefits, even bigger than those, go to the smallest fishermen who are going to suffer the worst under the business-as-usual case. Who benefits the most from the Vibrant Oceans Initiative? The model showed that there's a big synergy benefit for the artisanal fishermen, the smaller fishermen, especially in the Philippines. The reason is that the Philippines has a law that protects the coastal zone out to 15 kilometers exclusively for the smaller fishermen. I see. That law is often broken, and the big boats come in Mm -hmm. and fish Sometimes they bottom trawl, destroy the bottom. Our job is to get the big boats consistently kept beyond the 15-kilometer zone. Rare's job is to teach the artisanal guys how to not overfish that 15-mile zone themselves. If either one of us does our job, we help. But think about how we're vulnerable if we don't both do the job. If we keep the big boats out, then the smaller guys are capable of overfishing on their own. Mm-hmm. If the small guys stop overfishing and rebuild their oceans, then the big guys can come in and scoop up their fish. So it turns out you need to do both to get the maximum benefit. And the model, adding those two together, shows that you get a big bonus from doing both at the same time on top of the benefits you get from each one individually. Fantastic. Andy, what would you say to someone who doesn't like to eat fish or go to the beach or is a redhead like me and tries to avoid the beach occasionally (laughs) during the summer? How would you explain the benefits of ocean conservation to a person like that? This is something we realized also through working with Bloomberg. Rebuild ocean abundance and you do something very, very good that's easy to understand. Feed a lot of people. Create a lot of good fishing jobs. For many, many cases, very poor people around the world. But guess what? You do more than that. If you care about climate change, and you want to help us rebuild the oceans. If you care about biodiversity loss on the land, you want to help us rebuild the oceans. If you care about human health, you ought to help us rebuild the oceans. The biggest driver of biodiversity loss on the land is agriculture. It's not urbanization, it's agriculture. The most intensive form of agriculture is livestock production. In the year 2050, when there are going to be 2 billion more people on the planet than there are right now, 2 China's worth more people, if you care about biodiversity on the land, You want those people to be eating as much fish as possible because the animal protein that you get from fish is a livestock that you didn't have to grow and eat. So by building an abundant ocean for the year 2050, think about the terrestrial biodiversity benefit that we deliver. It's huge. Second point, a huge driver of climate change is methane emission from livestock production, chiefly from the rear ends of livestock. Methane is, along with CO2, a big driver of climate change. Methane levels in the atmosphere have been rising consistently since the rise of industrial era, but agriculture, especially livestock production, is a big cause of that. How do you minimize livestock-driven climate change? Give people an alternative for their animal protein, wild fish. Aquifer depletion. The grain that feed livestock come from fields that are in many cases manually irrigated from declining aquifers. So if you're worried about water supplies, and we've seen in California right now, after the unusual Mm -hmm. weather effects there, that they're having to divert reservoir water down into the agricultural uses, 
you can help on that problem by making sure that we can feed people from an abundant ocean instead of having to have huge expanded livestock production. And then lastly, human health. And this is something Bloomberg Philanthropies has long been a leader in. Your doctor will tell you, she will, that you should stop eating red meat and you should eat fish. And that if you do so, you will see big improvements in obesity, cancer, heart disease, even some things related to your mood. So we know that this work is incredibly important for people around the world as a source of food protein, as uh, as their livelihoods, for their economies. How can people who really care about these issues get involved? Well, there are a couple of ways. One is you can just become an uh, subscriber to Oceana's social media. We, of course, I have a Twitter feed. You can find me on Twitter. You can go to Oceana's website, oceana.org, and sign up for all kinds of engagement there. And I encourage anybody who's uh, listening to this to go do that. So if you want to know why I am motivated at Oceana, it's that I sincerely think that there's nothing else that is practical, that is achievable, that we can do well, let's say you and I can do this mm-hmm. in the next decade. We can do this together. All right. I'm in. Well, thank you for being here, Andy, and for your partnership. Congratulations on all of the 2016 victories, and here's to the new year. Thank you, Melissa. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. If you'd like to learn more about the Bloomberg Philanthropy's Vibrant Oceans Initiative, visit Bloomberg.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe and send us your feedback at followthedata at Bloomberg.org. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Until next time, keep following the data. Special thanks to producers and editors Kelsey McCarthy, Ivy Lee, and Lindsay Firestone, and music composer Mark Pirro. 